On this episode of Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered, we talk about the second home market, what it's like to do two different startups, very successful companies, how to get into real estate as a very young age and succeed in this business. It's gonna be an incredible show, tune in. You talk about it privately, we talk about it publicly. This is the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered Podcast. Welcome again to the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your host, James Dwiggins, along with my co-host, Keith Robinson, aka Crazy Uncle Keith. Yes, sir. Keith, tell us about Austin Allison, CEO of Picasso, former CEO and founder of Dotloop. We talked yes. a lot about a lot of stuff here, so dive in a little bit. Yes, Austin taught us how to be a baller on a budget. I'm sure he would not call it that. He's much more eloquent. Uh, but he talked to us about the startup world of residential real estate, what it's like to launch not one but two different companies, what some very of that experience companies. is like. Yeah, yeah. very successful Started in residential real estate as an agent at 18 years old. Gave us some insight and advice on what that was like. <clears throat> and is really passionate around second home ownership, affordability, and trying to uh, create a company that can help with all of those things. It was a really thoughtful and interesting conversation. It's a great show. Let's do it. Let's go. Austin, we're super excited to have you on the show today. Uh, I know you and I have known each other for a very long time. Um, we usually like to start with just a little bit of your background. I thought uh, you were going to say bourbon. Well, no? <laughs> well <That too> <laughs> bourbon or vodka, yes. Okay. Right. Uh, uh, but for the listeners and viewers, just a little bit of your background. I'm sure a lot of people know who you are, but you've been in this industry a long time. I'll let you do your own you know, background information, but you've got a very interesting historical perspective on the industry and you've been in a lot of different shoes. So we'll start there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first, thank you both for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Of course. Uh, I, I started, I, I would say it probably makes sense to sort of start at uh, my childhood. Uh, my dad was a carpenter. And so I was swinging a hammer by age three or four. And I think that kind of gave me the, the real estate bug very early on. And when I turned 18, I needed to find a way to pay my way through college because, you know, being being the son of a carpenter, we grew up paycheck to paycheck. Um, so real estate was that solution. I started selling real estate when I was 18 and that enabled <laughs> me awesome. to kind of pay my way through college. And that, awesome. uh, that actually led to my first real estate tech company. I had finished undergrad and I went on to law school after undergrad and I was in my first year of law school chasing buyers and sellers around to get signatures <laughs> on the trunk of my car. And I you were like the that. Lincoln lawyer of residential yes, real estate. Exactly. That basically, that's awesome. exactly. And I, yeah. I thought to myself, like, this can't continue. There's no way we're going to be, you know, signing carbon copy forms for forever. It seemed inevitable to me that real estate transactions would come online. So I started a company called dot loop to go kind of pursue that, that vision. And, um, and that you was know, in Keller Williams originally, right? You guys, you were in KW at that time when you were building that out. Is that right? Well, I, I actually wasn't part of Keller Williams. I was at an independent brokerage okay. uh, called Sipsy Klein in Cincinnati, where I'm from. And uh, Keller Williams was one of our first big customers, though. Got so it. We had, okay. we had a bunch of customers, but Keller Williams was like the game changer for us, if you will. That's awesome. Um, that awesome. And then from there, it continued on. You ended up exiting that venture when you sold to Zillow. Yeah. So I, I saw, we started it in uh, 2009, sold to Zillow in 2015. I stayed on at Zillow for about four years before taking a year off to start Picasso. And I know we'll probably talk about Picasso a little bit yeah. later, but yep. um, basically the, the 
there is some relevant backstory in my in my background, which is that growing up the son of a carpenter, you know, home ownership is not a foregone conclusion. It's not a guarantee. It's like it's like a dream. It was a dream for me, like it is for many people. And my real estate journey enabled my wife and I to become homeowners. And eventually it enabled us to become second homeowners in Lake Tahoe. And that second home that we purchased just fundamentally changed our lives for the better. And I wanted to find a way to make that possible for more people. So I had been thinking about that problem for the last 10 years or so. And we started Picasso about three years ago uh, to make that vision a reality. Well, we'll dive into that because we're yeah. gonna we want to talk about this. It's a really interesting business that you put together. But I I have some questions that just I think general audience would want to know. So you've done these multiple startups. What is the how do you go raise capital for that and like have the <laughs> you, influence to you, you ask a lot of times? That's yeah, <laughs> I mean exactly. like but like yeah. people. I think people have this like you know, thought process about Silicon Valley and just startups and money's flowing everywhere, but they don't understand like really how hard it is and what it takes to do it. So yeah, we're talking to one of the most successful people that have done it. What does that look like? Like how long does it take? How many meetings? It just kind of give people the concept of taking an idea of 10 years you've had in your head to fruition. Well, first off, it depends a lot on the market, the macro environment that you're in. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it was a heck of a lot easier to raise money and 2020 and 2021 <laughs> right. than it is in 2023. So that's they the were first just thing FedExing stacks of racks, right? <laughs> exactly, you were just getting yeah. like opening FedExes with I hundreds mean, of thousands of dollars in cash or whatever. As long as you had a pulse <laughs> and you know something that you could call a business plan, you know your your odds were pretty good that, yeah. that you might be able to raise the money back then. Um, but now it's very hard. And when when I first started raising capital for my first company, which was late 2008. You all remember what happened in 2008 yeah. and 2009, right? It yeah. wasn't good exactly times. wasn't yeah, exactly times. a vibrant feels similar, market. by the way. <laughs> yeah, it does yeah. feel right. similar in some respects. But yeah. I mean, the way that I did it back then was just hustle. I mean, right. you know, I talked to a lot of people. Uh, interestingly, and I didn't know anything about raising money. I, I read a book on you know how to raise money. I had never even heard of the term angel investor. So like, I was literally starting from scratch. And the first guy that ever invested in me was my former employer. I was an intern hmm. uh, at a company called Duke Realty, a commercial real estate firm that was based in Indianapolis. And I was working in the Cincinnati office. And I was working for this amazing guy who's still a mentor and a friend of mine named Jerry. And uh, basically, I went into Jerry one day and I said, hey, Jerry, I've been working on this idea on the side. And I think it has potential, but it needs somebody to, to sort of go make this dream a reality. And it also needs capital. And he said, well, can you show me the prototype? And I walked across the desk and showed Jerry the prototype. And after I showed him the prototype, he sat me down on the other side of the desk. And he said, you know, Austin, I've got two thoughts. The first thought is you have to go pursue this dream. I can feel your passion and your energy. And when you're describing this product, this may be the chance of a lifetime. You know, I love that you're loyal to Duke Realty, but hey, we're always going to be here. You know, our doors open if you want to come back and work for us. But like, you're going to go follow your heart here. Number two is, would you allow me to be your first investor? And I don't think Jerry had ever invested in a huh. tech company. He just basically believed in me on you. Yeah. as an entrepreneur. And I said, sure. You know, and then <laughs> I asked Jerry if he had any friends. Jerry introduced me to a couple of his friends. Next thing you know, over a period of 
three or four years, we had raised something like $5 million from these angel investors, 50 to a hundred thousand dollars at a time. Shout so out that, Jerry. Like, can we just yeah. have a shout out? Like Jerry, if you're listening, you're the man, like yeah. way to go, Jerry. Yeah. Absolute legend. You know, yeah. he, he, and it, it worked out well for him, you know, on both dot loop, he followed us into Picasso, you know, he's, he's a great guy and a great friend and I've learned That's a awesome. ton from him. Um, but the second time around, I, you know, I had more experience. I had raised money from um, venture capitalists. We had a lot more of a team. It wasn't just me. It was my co-founder, Spencer Raskoff, who's also, you know, very proven, obviously. And we had a whole team of people that we had worked with in the past. So it was a very different narrative the second time around. Sure. And sure. we went straight to venture capitalists in that scenario. We pretty much skipped the, the, invest, the angel investor uh, step. And, you know, again, we, we did have to talk to a lot of people. We heard a lot of no's, but um, we had a couple of early investors that believed in us. And, um, you know, how many no's did you well. get? I, I think this is important to hear because mm -hmm. I've I've been through this myself, not to the degree that you are. But I think people people don't realize, like, how many no's you have to take to get to a yes, even in the angel series or just the market conditions. Like when you were doing dot loop, how many conversations for investment did you have when you raised that $5 million? Just curious. Oh, I mean, at least, at yeah. least a hundred, but yeah. more likely I, it's been a while. So I don't remember the specific, but it was a lot, a lot, a lot, a hundred. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it was two or 300. I mean, mm -hmm. Like, but everybody that I talked to said no, essentially. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> it was the outlier that said yes. Right. I mean, even in, we didn't talk to nearly as many people this time around at Picasso because we had a lot more relationships, but you had a track record too. We, so but we still, helps. we still got yeah. a lot of no's. Sure. You know, yeah. even, even with the track record and an amazing team and a big idea, we still got a lot of no's. Um, right. So it's, it's hard. It's really mm -hmm. hard. I think that's mm -hmm. the thing that people don't, they, they see, I have these conversations a lot. They see the end result and they're, they're like, you know, wow, it's, you're, you're so lucky or, yeah. you know, I, I, I love hate that I word hate sometimes that it drives yeah. me nuts because now, luck go, is involved though. Luck is, I'm involved. not saying there yeah. isn't, yeah. but I actually say, mm, there's a little bit there, but most of it is just sheer grit and like mm -hmm. perseverance and willing to like take a hundred no's to get to five yeses. That yeah. just is like a certain mentality of human being that can, be shot down over and over and over again. And then you get that one check and you're like, okay, like someone believes in it. I just got to mm -hmm. find 10 more of those or 20 more of those. Yeah. Um, you I know, think one, one thing that's helpful though, I think James is um, starting early. Like when, when I started my first company, I was only 23 and I mean, I was just dead broke. I had no other option, but to like <laughs> see this thing sure. succeed, you know what yeah. I mean? And I think like starting if, if I were if I if I hadn't had, you know, a win and some financial uh, stability in my life, I, I mean, I do think it would be harder in this yeah. environment versus yeah. before when I was just left with no choices. Right. Right. I got of, to, I got a question going back to uh, 18 year old Austin getting into real estate to pay for college. Someone mm -hmm. listening to this probably is, you know, young and just starting in residential real estate. What advice would you give to them or what advice would you give to yourself knowing what you know now, looking back about Good the question. craft of residential real estate, the industry of residential real estate? You have a neat, you've, you've basically grown up in this industry, right? So mm -hmm. what advice would you give to an 18 year old that happened to be listening to this or a 19 year old just starting in residential real estate? I would say number one, surround yourself 
with as many great people as you can. Mm-hmm. That story about Jerry, uh, you know, was one of many people that I was fortunate to connect with uh, that served as mentors and they enabled me to shorten the learning curve because I was able to benefit from their successes and their failures. And there's really, you know, I mean, reading books is also helpful, but in my experience, there's nothing that's more helpful than surrounding yourself with great people. Uh, number two is like work your tail off. Like, (laughs) you know, I remember when I, I don't know if they still do this in real estate school, but I remember when I went into real estate school, I did this like, you know, um, evening course um, uh-huh. and they sort of positioned it as though I was going to become, you know, a millionaire in the next right. five years. Like, <laughs> right. Right. like right. congratulations. It's all, it's all yeah. three martini lunches and white exactly. Mercedes. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. congratulations. You know, you're now, you're now guaranteed to be a millionaire because you're a real estate agent. And it's like, that couldn't be further from the truth. Like you real estate is an amazing industry. And you can do very well, but it's super hard work. Like the people yeah. that do it well, earn it. They don't mm-hmm. just like show yeah. up and, and have it land on their lap. And I think that is a, a common misconception that people have when, when entering the industry. Um, those, those would probably be the top two. I guess if there was one more I would add, it would be follow your heart. Like yeah. I'm a big, big believer in, in following your passion, whatever that passion is. Uh, because obviously if you're doing if, if you're pursuing something that you love, you end up doing better work and working harder. Sure. So if you love real estate, go after it. But if you're just entering this industry because you think it's a great way to make money, that's probably the wrong reason to be sure. in the yeah. industry. On that passion part, because there's this lie that sort of permeates life where people say, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, right? Well, yeah, that's that's bullshit, right? <laughs> go ahead and square <laughs> that away. Right. Uh, you work more actually, but that's but fine. Yeah. W- if you're passionate about it and you love it, you will work harder than someone who isn't right. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. if you work harder than someone, then you will get a better result. Right. So, but this yeah. whole narrative of you'll never work another day in your life, that that's not true. Right? You, right. you mentioned, you mentioned reading books. What's your favorite book this year that you're reading just for people oh. to grasp on to like, what's your go-to right now? So my or- favorite book that I read this year is called die with zero. That's a good one. That's on my uh, stack. I haven't read it yet. So it's so good. And you know, you really got to read. I don't know if you have kids, but don't let your kids see you reading that. They're going to be uh, well, in, I mean, interestingly, when you read the book, you, given the name, the title of the book, it, it's right. easy to draw conclusions around yeah. kind of the, the thesis, but it, the book is not actually just suggesting like, you know, spend all your money and don't give anything to your kids. And in fact, and, and, and it's also not only Never mind. Book, I don't want to read it then. <laughs> it's not only a book for people with, with a lot of wealth either. Like as an example, mm. one of the things they talk about in the book is there's this idea that we have these arcs in our life. One arc around health, like our, our well-being. Mm-hmm. another arc around wealth and another arc around available time. And mm-hmm. the, 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 a life that's sort of lived to the fullest is one where you've optimized those three arcs throughout your life. So like mm-hmm. as an example, when you're young and broke and have a lot of time in your hands, that's the time to go backpack around Europe. Right. 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 And, it, and it's, that's not something that you have to have a lot of money for, right? You can go backpack and stay in hostels and that's a die with zero life experience. 
versus as you're older in life and maybe your health isn't quite as good, but you have more financial means, there's different activities that are optimal for that stage in life. So you mean I stay, it, stay at the Ritz? Is that, is that, yeah, what you that, mean? yeah. That, that's, that's one example, but yeah, yeah. it's, it's a, it really has been a transformative book awesome. for me and I highly recommend it. We'll have to uh, put that on our list to, to go through. All right. Well, I want to dig into this now. So your, your big passion project, as you mentioned for 10 years, you've been thinking about this was um, essentially Picasso. And yep. let's start there. I mean, you, you said you mentioned you got a house in Tahoe. Congratulations, a beautiful part of the world. Um, tell us about Picasso. What formed it? Like, where was Where is it today? Where was it then? Like, give us some background on that. And we'll dive in on a lot of questions around that venture. As yeah, well. absolutely. So it was 10 years ago, my wife and I uh, bought this second home in Tahoe, and we hadn't sold to Zillow yet. So I didn't have the financial freedom that I have today. It took everything that we had financially to buy this home. We put all of our money down. We actually couldn't afford to pay the mortgage. So we had to rent the home out on Airbnb to pay the mortgage. So it was a real stretch for us financially. But that home was perhaps the best thing that we ever did as a couple. Like it, it became this happy place for us that enabled us to like clear our mind, recharge mm -hmm. our batteries, feel accomplished, you know, the, the neighbors in that community became our close friends. Like we didn't just buy a home. We bought a second life in many ways. And yeah. it was very enriching. So I wanted to find a way to make that possible for more people because I learned how special it is, number one. And number two, how inaccessible it is due to home prices and now interest rates. But the other thing that I learned about second homes is that most of them sit empty 10 to 11 months per year. Uh, so I can vouch for that. <laughs> so the, you're not alone. I mean, the uh, national, the national average is five weeks per year. That's how often people use their second home. Really? And there's right? nothing, there's not much that's worse for a community or worse for a housing industry than empty second homes hmm. because it constrains the inventory, the, the industry of inventory, uh, which drives up home prices. It starves local businesses because there's no owners in those homes supporting the businesses year round. So the whole idea behind Picasso was what if we could take all these empty second homes and connect them with all these aspiring homeowners in a more efficient and sustainable ownership structure, which we describe as co-ownership. And uh, that, that was the idea in a nutshell. And it's going super well. Uh, we've done about a billion dollars in, in cumulative sales. Uh, we have about 1,500 happy uh, owners now. We've done about 70,000 stay nights or our owners rather have used their home about 70,000 nights consecutively. Uh, so it's going, it's going very well. So conceptually, I'm going to break this down for simple terms. Essentially you, you guys, the source of property, you, uh, I'm assuming you buy the property and then you guys manage that property as well. Like you take care of making sure that it's cleaned and all of this stuff for the ownership group. Um, and then you sell it in fractions. I, I, that may not be the right word, but essentially a percentage of, of time that somebody can own in that property up to eights. Did I get that right? Or is it? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's pretty much right. I mean, the easiest way to get your mind around it is imagine if you and three or four of your friends or family members wanted to buy a home together. Picasso enables you to do that, except for you don't have to know the other people because we manage every detail. We design the home, we furnish the home, we clean the home. We provide financing. So 70% of our owners use financing to buy their share. That, that's all originated through Picasso. It's really like kind of a, a whole new way to, to own real estate that's 
hassle free. Yeah. I love it because yeah. I can speak to that of owning a property and then being like, <laughs> use it five weeks out of the year. I, I love the damn thing. To, I can speak to using your property. For yeah. Free. Like, that's, does anybody want to use it? Yeah. Like, please, for God's sake, somebody use yeah. the damn thing. You yeah. know, put me on yeah. your list, James. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll like, yeah. For a free second home. Yeah. Uh, well, it, I have a question yeah. about it because when I first looked at it, and this was a while back when you guys were launching, but one of the things that I thought was really powerful and I'd love to get an update on how it's worked is there isn't really a marketplace for a second home, right? Like right. the whole four people buying together example is great until one of them goes through a divorce and has to sell. Exactly. And what do you do exactly. with that? How has that journey of trying to create the marketplace first? How's that going? Give us a quick update on that space. Cause that's the part to me that like, if you crack the code, not that you need me to tell you what I like and what I don't, but like yeah. crack the code on that. And now this is a, an offering that is unique in a way of nothing else I've ever seen. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right that the marketplace piece of it is super important. It's going really well. We actually just issued a, a press release last week uh, that included some of the, the stats from some of our markets. But the headline is that um, these shares are appreciating at a rate that's as good or better than the underlying real estate. So they're mm. selling faster and appreciating better than what you would expect if you would have bought the whole home. So the secondary market is working uh, super well, and we think it's a really, really important part of the, the strategy. One other thing that I'll add, though, you know, there are a couple of problems with the DIY co-ownership model. Um, one of the problems is what you just alluded to. It's like impossible to sell if you're yeah. trying to do this on your own because there is no market for that. Another challenge with the DIY co-ownership model is financing. The only way to get a loan on a DIY co-owned home is for Everybody's everybody to sign mm -hmm. with, where you're joint and severally liable. Picasso has solved that problem with a uh, effectively a new financing product whereby Picasso steps in and deals with the default if one owner defaults so that the other owners aren't on the, the hook. And the third uh, pretty obvious challenge with DIY co-ownership is the hassle. There are a lot of little details that people have to align on. And oftentimes when friends go in on a home together, <laughs> they end up frenemies because of all right. these little challenges. Because so. everybody wants Christmas, right? And exactly. You know, they're, they're fighting over Christmas. So and Picasso solves all those problems. Uh, there's been a lot of headlines around changes around short-term rentals. And, yeah. and you're, I, maybe you might be adjacent to that. You're not exactly, yeah. you're not a short-term rental, but um, how, what's your opinion on sort of this municipalities bucking against short-term rental is that a headwind for you, first of all? And then more importantly, just your opinion on that in general. Like, where do you see all of that going? Yeah. So, you know, I think it is a bit of a headwind for us because we kind of get caught in the wake of short-term right. rentals. So we're, <laughs> right. we're not a short-term rental. In fact, we actually prohibit short-term rentals um, mm. in our ownership structure. So like, okay. we're, we're definitely not the same thing, but oftentimes we're sort of lumped into that same bucket and there's confusion around what we are or what we're not. So I would say it's a little bit of a headwind from that perspective, you know, in, in terms of what the right answer is, you know, I, it, it's kind of a, a, a tough call. I mean, on, on one side of the spectrum, you have property rights, which are, you know, I have a right to buy this property and I should have a right to survive and rent it out and make it available to other people. But at the same time, like municipalities also have a right, to zone and regulate usage. So mm -hmm. I think it's like, I, I don't know that there is a right answer other than like what's right for a specific community. There's some sure. communities where short-term rentals like are the community, you know, like right, if you go to Lake right. Tahoe, for example, um, 
there's something like 10,000. Don't quote me on these numbers because sure. I'm not super uh, up to speed on the actuals, but I think there's something like 10,000 short-term rentals in the whole great Lake Tahoe area, which is a me. lot. Like yeah. if you, if you cut short-term rentals out of that ecosystem, you kill it. it just collapses. You know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's like every market's um, a little bit different, but what municipal where I don't think municipalities have a right to regulate is around ownership. Yeah. You know, I think it would be wrong for a municipality to say that two people can't own a home together because they met on match. Just like I think it would be wrong for a municipality to say that two people can't own a home together because they met through Picasso. So I don't I know. That, I, on the first one, I might push back a little. No, I'm just kidding. I'm no, just, you, know, like, you just took like, it there. We're talking yeah, about dating now. So here the we, best go. Analogy. We, have a, we have a right. We have a right to privacy and we have a we have certain rights to own property. And uh, I think it's important that municipalities focus on regulating usage, not ownership. Yeah. Couldn't couldn't agree more. I, you know, it's it's interesting because I Airbnb my house uh, up in Arnold in between Yosemite and Tahoe. And it's important part of the community up there because it's their tourism dollars. That's literally where they get their money is, is you know, weekenders coming in and spending money in the community, going to restaurants, etc. Um, and it's always a fight because you have the full time people. It's I, I'm going to I'll make a controversial statement because I don't give a shit like it's there's <laughs> there you got full time people that live there that are like, they hate the weekenders, but they don't realize that they actually drive the economy. Like they're yeah. the ones that are putting, they're filling the restaurants they're doing all of this stuff. There's always this push and pull. New York is a great example of like, you know, you can see where this is, you know, you get this mix up of, we need more inventory. There's not enough housing. There's too many short-term rentals. Okay. Well then change your damn housing policy. It's not about yeah. short-term rentals. <laughs> right. Um, we all know that a bunch of hotel, uh, hoteliers or however you say that got involved in, and, you know, essentially lobbied a bunch of people to make changes to the city. Um, you know, Vegas is another great example. You can't do anything under 30 days. Yeah. Why do you think that is? It's not because anything other than the hotels got that passed as a, as a law. So it's a very interesting time, but it, it comes down to, I love what you're doing because you're allowing people the opportunity to have that experience. I'm going to take it back to what you and your, your wife talked about. Mm. And my wife and my, and my daughter get to experience that too. You have a second it's like you're home away from home and it's different. It's experiences, yeah. it's vacation. You build different memories that way. It's hard to be able to afford to do that. And what I love is you're giving people that option to spend that five, six, eight weeks, whatever it might be, and not have to pay for the whole thing, which just yeah. makes it more, more, more achievable. So, I mean, w one other thing that I think is really important to note about what we're doing with co-ownership is not just on the accessibility side of making it possible for more people to own, but co-ownership is actually part of the housing solution. Like we are, we are in the yeah. middle of a housing affordability crisis right now. And there's only, there's only one way, or well, I guess two ways to mitigate this crisis, which is to build more inventory sure. or make better use of the inventory that we have. And co-ownership fits in that second bucket. Mm -hmm. Like we have all these empty second homes. So if we can consolidate demand into fewer homes, it actually frees up more inventory for the local workforce, which will in turn relieve some pressure on the, uh, the, the home prices and the, the affordability issues. So I think it's important that not just homeowner or not just co-ownership, but I think we need to continue to invest in things like ADUs to mm -hmm. enable people to create, you know, space on someone's lawn 
or more progressive zoning. Like we just sure. passed a, a thing called SB nine in California, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with yep. that allows yep. more density on a, on a, you know, single parcel lot and innovations like this, I think are going to be really important in the future as we look for ways to create more supply. So are you lob I'm, I'm, you know, are you lobbying? Are you, are you involved in the lobbying efforts to help change some of these laws and some perspective? Are you guys just, taking that approach now? Just a reminder, uh, you're, being, you're being recorded. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're, <laughs> just kidding. No, I, I wouldn't say that we're, I, I would say that we're involved collaborating with municipalities. So we, okay. when in all the municipalities where we operate, we work very closely with the, um, the electeds and the housing groups to try to identify ways to make co-ownership part of the housing solution as opposed to part of the problem. So I want to double back yeah. on the, on the, on the financing piece. Uh, how, do you portfolio that product inside your company or do you have a financial backer who's agreed to your structure? Um, the latter, the latter. we're more, okay. we're more, we're more like an originator, I guess is the yep. appropriate way to categorize it. Like, we go out and we partner with various lending institutions. We then originate these loans on behalf of the institution. And yep. then we provide a guarantee structure over top of the loan that would obligate us to step in and handle a default if somebody defaults. Which I'm sure they love that piece, right? That that extra safety. Exactly. Yeah. And we've we've not had a single default, you know, in three years and you know, many hundreds of loans. Um, but someday there probably sure. will be a default. And but is there a certain type of clientele you're targeting? Like I mean, is there is I'm is is it a certain income level that typically you guys are hitting? This is gonna lead into my question about property sourcing. Like is are you are you at a certain price point? Are you looking to change that price point over time? Yeah, so we do to qualify for financing. We we obviously do have requirements that the applicant must satisfy. Um, the the biggest requirement is the down payment. So we you have to put a minimum of thirty percent down. These aren't like ninety or one hundred percent loans, so that qualifies a lot of people right out of the gate. But most of our properties today are are very luxury, or what many would argue super luxury. Um, yeah. Long term, our vision is to make and actually, frankly, midterm, not even long term, but midterm, our vision is to make home ownership accessible across a lot more price points at a lot more markets. So, yeah, I was so I was cruising around your website prepping for this. And I know when I went last time, I was probably don't take offense. It was a while ago. Right? It was maybe a year ago yeah. the last time. But every once in a while I go cruise through because you always have beautiful properties and uh, but I saw more three, four, five hundred thousand dollar bite sizes than I ever remember seeing. So it sounds yeah. like that's by design. You're trying to widen the aperture and make it accessible for more and more people. Yeah, and eventually we want hundred thousand dollar bite you know, size. shares yeah. or less. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and that that won't happen in places like Aspen, you know, right. or Napa, where home <laughs> right. prices are expensive. Right. But right. it'll it'll happen in places like you know the Lake Town outside of. Chicago yeah. or wherever, you know what yeah. I mean? Like there's a lot of second home destinations that are very relevant regionally, but yeah. not, not as relevant mm. nationally. Like Aspen is a nationally relevant vacation right. market where people come from all over the world to go. But there's so many of these amazing second home destinations that are drive markets right. to the cities that surround them where home prices are more affordable. And I, I'm really excited about the day that we'll be able to serve those markets. Are you looking at, um, this is going to go hand in hand. How do you source the properties? And then my other question kind of piggybacking, are you looking to do international at some point as well outside the U S 
Yeah, so we're we're currently, I'll take the second one first. We're currently in London and Mexico, both of which are Cabo specifically, both of which are going really well. Cabo oh, I'm going to go browse now. Yeah, yeah, Cabo, yeah. Cabo in we'll, particular. We've lost James for the bye next bye. seven Straight minutes, high. but Austin, you and I can hang out. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, you know, you could, you could definitely uh, expect a lot more in um, those markets. What was the first part of the question? And then how do you source the properties? Oh, Where do you, how do you find them? Yeah. So we basically source from a combination of active listings that are coming online. So we're a licensed broker in all the markets where we operate. So we're getting the feeds and seeing the listings in real time. But we also get a lot of listings direct from our real estate agent partners okay. um, or direct from sellers. So there's a lot of second homeowners that are sitting on 100% of a home that they only use 10% of the time. James, mm -hmm. it sounds like you're in this bucket. Um, those second homeowners can come to Picasso and sell down part of their home. So you could sell, say, 25 or 50 percent of your home, take your chips off the table with respect to cashing out your equity while reducing your operating expense and still keeping the home that you love or at least the portion of it that you love. So that's that's a big part of it as well. Interesting. And how do how are agents part of this process? They send I mean, obviously, if they have a property to like, hey, take a look at this, which is just talking out loud. That seems like they should keep that in their portfolio when they're meeting with potential sellers that we have. There's lots of options, the open market. We have a partnership with Picasso. We can talk to them about purchasing the property. Go a little bit deeper on that. And I'm assuming there's some type of compensation for them on this. How do they, how are they compensated in this process besides just managing the listing? Yeah. So bringing listings uh, to us is, is kind of an obvious way to work with yeah. us. And we have lots of agent partners that do that. Um, but the other big opportunity is on the buy side. So most agents, most good agents have a database of prospective buyers, many of which have larger uh, appetites than wallets, meaning mm -hmm. maybe they want, maybe you're looking in Napa and you want a three or $4 million home, but your budget is only five or 600,000, right? Now with Picasso, you can convert that prospect to a homeowner because this is now a tool in your toolkit that you can use to create new inventory that didn't exist before. And in those scenarios, uh, we pay full commission, so full 3% commission, and we make it as easy as a referral. Like you literally just bring your client to us. We have a portal where you can see the status of everything that's going on. We keep you up to speed throughout the entire process, but we do all the work. You as the agent don't have to do any of the work. Um, we make is it a, as easy is as a good referral. comp like when an agent will refer to a new home builder, similar? Uh, yeah, sort of... very, very good comp. Very yep. good comp. Okay. So it seems to me like when I, I think about this, I'm on this whole kick about our industry has to continue to shift our value proposition from being transactional to be more relationship over the eight yep. to 13 years that the person owns a property. To me, this is another thing where you're, you're managing this relationship. If you're involved with your client's life, you know what they're doing mm -hmm. and where they are in their life. This is an opportunity when they say, you know, I'm thinking about a second home, but I can't afford it. You're like, it's funny. You should mention that. Like we have a partnership exactly. and this is where they can start to continue to be another resource in that process. Um, or even yeah, just we're... making part of their marketing to their sphere of influence, right? This is another service that I can help you with should at any point you have the need, whether right. it's purchasing a second home outright or uh, access to partnerships with your company or others like them. So this yeah. should be part of the discussion for every real estate agent in the US, right? I've also seen, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I've seen some agents um, sort of assume that by promoting Picasso, it means that they're like 
not going to get a whole home transaction out of that deal. So they, they almost view it as quasi competitive, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Like if somebody has a $500,000 budget and they want a $3 million home, guess what? They're not transacting. Anything. Well, it's also, <laughs> right? yeah, so it, like, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. It also couldn't be further from your fiduciary duty, right? Yeah. Well, the whole that, point yeah, is exactly. you're supposed to put their interests above your own. Yeah. And if like, we got to stop with all of the, I almost said totally. a bad word, but like, oh, you can say it. I mean, I always like to have a shirt that says math is hard. Like it's explaining <laughs> your client can't afford that, but they can afford yeah. this. Yeah. Um, well, well, we're getting to the end. It's a, one more thing. It's a stepping yeah. stone too. So mm. not only are you converting window shoppers into transactions, but many of these window shoppers will become whole home buyers in the future. So the more you can help them today, the more likely they are to transact in the future. And we have some of our agent partners that have made a million dollars in commissions on Picasso yeah. Yeah. in the first two and a half, three years. So and, like there's real opportunity here. And most importantly, I mean, making a lot of money is great, but, and they served their clients at the highest level, totally. right? Like yeah, if absolutely. they, they absolutely, those people's lives were changed because of that real estate professional. Yep. And now they're going to spend the weekend at Tahoe or Napa or pick your favorite destination location. And every time they're going for those five, six weeks, however many, it's because of the relationship with that real estate professional. And that's yep. how we remain in the center of the transaction forever. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love Absolutely. what you're doing. I think it's great. It's a, it's a, you know, personally speaking, I know what that opportunity is of having that second property and just the memories it creates for your family. It's different than the house you deal with all your bullshit all day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. um, well, Keith has a final question. He always uses to wrap and up our show. And you and, actually, Austin, are going to get two final questions, which is the first right. time in the history it. of this podcast. So the wow. first one is my little ponies over your right shoulder. Explain. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> yes. love it. So those little ponies are unicorns and they okay. have a little Picasso logo on the side uh, of them. Um, when we launched Europe. So uh, as I mentioned, we're in, we're in London and mm -hmm. looking at other markets there as we speak. But when we launched Europe, we threw a sort of a launch party for some of our agent partners there. And these little unicorns were the little tchotchke kind of that's takeaway awesome. gift thing. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Love it. Yeah. I've got stuffed animals and whole camp behind me. So <laughs> yeah, I get I love it. it. All right, cool. Now the actual final question that I ask every guest, if you were a real estate broker or agent today, what's the one thing that you would add or change in your business to make the biggest difference? Well, you know, I'm biased <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Given, given my role at Picasso, but sure. I would say that, you know, I've found that times like this, while they can be challenging, present a ton of opportunity because there's new problems that need to be solved, um, new innovations that come to market and adopting those innovations to solve these new problems presents a huge opportunity. And I think there is a, Massive problem around housing affordability mm. and a massive innovation around co-ownership that solves that problem. And I think every agent on the call should at least be considering, you know, Picasso and co-ownership as a tool in their toolkit to, to convert more window shoppers into homeowners. Yeah, I, I couldn't. You've got to do more and do different in this market cycle. And whether that more and different is Picasso or whatever, yeah. two, two or three things, uh, you can't do what you did in 2020 and have right. the same result in 2023. It's just right. not period. End of story. That's not going to happen. Yep. So I love that concept of 
widening the aperture on the service that you provide, finding different ways to provide value and therefore monetization of the same group of human beings you already service. So spot on, in my opinion. I love the uh, the innovation and then, you know, your drive. I think it's great for people to hear from a really successful entrepreneur about just the struggles and what it takes and just figuring out how to get there and, and following that passion, too. So thanks for being on the show. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, we'll have for all the viewers and listeners in the in the description, you'll have a link to Picasso. You can check them out. So um, Austin, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, enjoy yeah, the conversation. James, Keith, thank you very much as well. Take care. Of course. All right. Awesome. I'm, I'm going to get me one of those unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> you can send him a Hulk smash thing. So I love we'll, it. Yeah. We'll trade it. All right. All thanks, right. buddy. See you guys. It's our job to say out loud what everybody's only thinking to themselves. It's your job to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. <laughs>